0: You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. This is a reflection on Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition, and we're going to be talking about Section uh, 32 and Chapter 3 on action, the process of character of action, and surprisingly, uh, a very, very Christian application That kind of came out of nowhere in uh, section 33, irreversibility and the power to forgive. So if you are new to this segment, I guess you would say, this is not our normal podcast. We are going to start trying to do a morning reflection on the readings for the book club. So if you enjoy this, please make sure you share it out, tag us, let us know that you like it. You can comment on our website if you click on the podcast link. Or if you want to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we really appreciate it. That is the best way for us to continue being able to create better content, get more exposure, and have uh, fun guest authors on the show. So let's dive in. So in in Section 32, what she's going to do is she kind of has this nihilistic bent, and she kind of has, I wouldn't say had it throughout the whole book, but she definitely has uh, a nihilistic description here. In section 32, where she talks about the man has essentially come to such a level of power that he finds himself in, in between a dilemma. Number one, he can't be free because he's always in relationship with other powerful human beings. They might have impacts on his life, even if he goes into the woods and he decides to hide a powerful, you know, Timber Mobile might come along with all of his equipment and destroy his little home that he has set up for himself in the, as a nomad in the woods. The second thing is, is that he can never be fully sovereign because there are always uh, people who are surrounding him. And thus he can never be fully free because sovereignty and freedom go hand in hand. In fact, she even says that the only way you could actually be free is if you were one, if you, if you were God basically. She says, in other words, the issue here is not strength or weakness in the sense of self-sufficiency. In polytheist systems, for instance, even a god, no matter how powerful, cannot be sovereign. Only under the assumption of one god, little g, can sovereignty and freedom be the same. Under all other circumstances, sovereignty is possible only in imagination, paid for by the price of reality. And so what she is setting up for you here is a paradox between freedom and sovereignty and how you can never be fully free nor fully sovereign. The second problem is, though, is that man is increasing in his power. And if you are following any of our other podcasts, we did one on the divine atheism, uh, Yuval Noah Harari and C.S. Lewis's Hideous Strength, in which we talked about C.S. Lewis's prophetic vision of man's ability to Uh, control and wield nature such that he would be able to make man in his own image, even erasing the image of God. Now, some people will say, that's impossible! Um, On a general level, yes, but clearly we are watching in real time uh, men forsaking their image of God in an attempt to erase it, and there's a difference between actually succeeding and failing in the attempt. And so, at the beginning of the prologue, or uh, of this book, Hannah Arendt brings up the fact that Sputnik uh, being tossed into the the atmosphere is the the most uh, significant human event ever accomplished. She says, this event, second in importance to no other, not even to the splitting of the atom, would be greeted with unmitigated joy if it had not been for the uncomfortable military and political circumstances attending it. And she goes down further. She says that this this, uh, accomplishment is a symbol that man will be able to cast off their natural selves. And she sees the same trends that C.S. Lewis sees. So she ends the the paragraph with, mankind will not remain bound to earth forever. And this was seen, that Sputnik was seen as this ability now for man to cast off their earthly prisons. So she continues that theme here on 233. and She says, While the strength of production process is entirely absorbed in, an, in and exhausted by the end product, the strength of the action process is never exhausted in a single deed, but on the contrary can grow while its consequences multiply. What endures in the realm of human affairs are these processes, and their endurance is as unlimited, as independent of the perishability of material and the mortality of men as the endurance of humanity itself. So she's talking about the the fact that man has, you know, this paradox of sovereignty and freedom, but also has this problem of they don't really know what their actions are going to cause. They don't know the consequences. They can't see down the road. And so what they think might be good actually ends up causing more harm. And But the fact of the matter is, is that they have gained an, an incredible amount of power. And the power is not just the ability now to influence natural processes, but to create natural processes. So what she says is, What then developed into an ever-increasing skill in unchaining elemental processes, which without the interference of men would have lain dormant and perhaps never have come to pass, has finally ended in a veritable art of, quote-unquote, making nature, that is, of creating natural processes which without men would never exist and which earthly nature by herself seems incapable of accomplishing, although similar or identical processes may be commonplace phenomena in the universe surrounding the earth. And this same thing, I even have a note in the side of my margin, is what is reiterated in the abolition of man that man will gain so much power. And it's demonstrated through contraceptives, actually, according to C.S. Lewis, which I think he's right, because that is an example in which man was able to create a new process of human action, mainly in, in women, but the ability to stop something that is part of the human experience by virtue of just being a woman, uh, to be able to halt that and completely change the trajectory is an example of man's control over natural processes, the ability to create new natural processes because, you know, she's still a woman, but now the process has started on a trajectory which man cannot foresee the full effect of. And so maybe we're starting to see that as birth rates around the world decline. Last I checked, the average birth rate right now is three uh, globally, according to Peter Zane. She she creates this nihilistic approach, and now the question is, well, how do you actually get out of this? And she takes this very odd uh, turn in section 33, where she brings up the only way to get out of this is forgiveness. And so she has this quote right at the beginning, where you can actually theologize it, um, meaning you can take her words and replace them with Christian words, and it still seems to have a very powerful effect. So she says... Uh here she says we have seen that the animal laborans, or we could say, sinners, could be redeemed from its predicament of imprisonment in the ever recurring cycle of the life process, or of toil that comes at the fall, of being forever subject to the necessity of labor and consumption, only through the mobilization of another human capacity, the capacity for making, fabricating, and producing of Christ, who as a toolmaker not only eases the pain and trouble of laboring, but also erects a world of durability. The redemption of life, which is sustained by labor, is worldliness, which is sustained by fabrication. So it's not a perfect one-to-one, but you start to see, huh, that kind of sounds a little bit Christian there if you kind of swap out some of her words. And I kind of thought I was just kind of having a good time doing that until I turn the page, and I keep seeing all these Christian themes, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but 237, it's like, huh, yeah, that sounds like a Christian theme right there about how you have to have, you know, forgiveness and promises. It's like God's covenantal love and forgiveness, and then you keep going, you see even more. And then at the end of 238, she says, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. And the whole section now goes into her descriptions of how the only way to get out of this paradox of human freedom and sovereignty, meaning you can never have one or the other, as well as the dangers of the human process of action, is to forgive one another. And it's a very odd turn because up until this point, everything has been very, very kind of ironically stoic. So, what happens, what she's driving at here is unequivocally the fact that Jesus holds in his teachings the solution to the political problems of human nature and the power they've obtained. She says essentially that, yes, man's actions are going to cause unintended consequences, but only in forgiveness can we actually bring the community back together. And so uh, she says, and I think a lot of pastors would benefit from this reading uh, as well, Certain aspects of the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth, which are not primarily related to the Christian religious message but sprang from experiences in the small and closely knit community of his followers bent on challenging the public authorities in Israel, certainly belong among them, even though they have been neglected because of their allegedly exclusively religious nature. Now, your first pass on that might think that she's trying to say Jesus was just a political thinker, but that's not what she's saying. She's saying Jesus' teachings are not exclusively religious, meaning they don't merely have an application in the personal life. They have an application in the public life, and that's evident from the fact that Jesus' teachings were public, which, again, gets into our private and public distinction at the beginning of the book. And secondly, that they challenged the public Ideas that came from religious and political authorities, that Jesus was not afraid to take his religious teachings and apply them against the politic of his day. But she keeps going and she talks about the need for a promise and that, again, we cannot isolate ourselves. There's no way for you to be fully isolated from the effects of what we would call, the, 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 what she calls, homo uh, favor or human creators and the uh, animal laborans, or the, the, the animal that labors. She says that the only way that we can actually apply this forgiveness is also in the idea of a promise. She says, "...without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we have done, our capacity to act would, as it were, be confined to one single deed from which we could never recover. We would remain victims of its consequences forever." not unlike the sorcerer's apprentice who lacked the magic formula to break the spell. Without being bound to the fulfillment of promises, we would never be able to keep our identities. We would be condemned to wander helplessly and without direction in the darkness of each man's lonely heart, caught in its contradictions and equivocalities, a darkness which only the light shed over the public realm through the presence of others, who confirm the identity between the one who promises and the one who fulfills, can dispel. Forgiving and promising enacted in solitude or isolation remain without reality and can signify no more than a role played before oneself. And so clearly there is an allusion here to being a city on a hill. Christianity has its most powerful effect when it is public, not private. And this is one of the dangers that she is pointing out here with the public private distinction that when that gets inverted, when what is supposed to be public, like Our praise and worship of God and the forgiveness of others and the fulfilling of promises ends up having to be receded back into the dark corners of privacy. Darkness literally falls over the land. The darkness in the human heart bleeds out into the public space and covers the land. And this is why Christians have to understand that they can't take an approach of isolationism or of silence or of going along to get along because it has real political effects, because the nature of your faith is actually to be public. And Hannah Arendt is not, from what I can gather, a Christian. She's recognizing the, what we might call, natural light of God's revelation uh, that comes into the politic through the revelation of Jesus Christ. But we live in a very, very, give me the, the simplest, easiest way to think about X. And then if X is Christianity, that's, I just... I want the easiest, most simplest formulation. All right, just trust the Bible, you're good. But the reality is is that the Bible's message is not meant to stay within the Bible, and its application is not merely religious or exclusively religious like she says. She recognizes that Christ's teachings and revelations actually come into play politically because of the phenomenon of forgiveness. And she'll secularize it, you know, she'll say, Jesus discovered forgiveness in the realm of human affairs. It's like, yeah, okay, maybe. But at the same time, well, and if you're a Christian, most likely not, since he is the the epitome of what forgiveness is. But keep in mind that his forgiveness and his sacrifice and the promises were all on public display in the crucifixion. The whole thing is a public display of forgiveness, promises, and the and the role model that a human being, not just a Christian, But a human being is meant to emulate, and we Christians have the inside scoop on that and know that we can't do it on our own. So if you're ready to bow down and confess your sins and come to Jesus, do it right now, and there you go. Now you'll be be good to go. But back to the political discussion, she talks about the fact that even in this, though, we can't make revenge our response to evils in the world. And and it's it's just a very interesting chapter because it feels like it kind of comes out of nowhere. But when you've read the first couple sections, you realize that this is exactly what she is uh, she should be saying because she kind of sets it up like there's this hopelessness and there's not this this uh, this solution that's apparent. And and she finds it in forgiveness and and giving revenge to God in in in, in some respects. And so here she says. Forgiving in other words is the only reaction which does not merely react but acts anew and unexpectedly unconditioned by the act which provoked it and therefore freeing from its consequences both the one who forgives and the one who is forgiven the freedom contained in Jesus's teachings of forgiveness is the freedom from vengeance which encloses the both doer and sufferer in the relentless automatism automatism of the action process which by itself need never come to an end She continues, This is the true hallmark of those offenses which, since Kant we call radical evil, and about whose nature so little is known, even to us who have been exposed to one of their rare outbursts in the public scene. Hannah Arendt was a a survivor. She, She fled the Holocaust. All we know is that we can neither punish nor forgive such offenses, and that they therefore transcend the realm of human affairs and the potentialities of human power, both of which they radically destroy wherever they make their appearance. Here, where the deed itself dispossesses us of all power, we can, the evil deed that is, we can indeed only repeat with Jesus, "It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea." And that, obviously, we, as you know, if you're a Christian who studies Bible, you know that that context is about false teachers. But what she's trying to drive at is that there might be some actions in which we don't actually have a a, a proper solution of justice to right the wrong of radical evil. Like, even when you look at the Nuremberg trials of the Nazis, d- does there, there's a little bit of reprieve maybe for those who lost all of their family and, and the lives of, of their kids and loved ones. But is it sufficient? It doesn't seem like it could be. It seems like there's there's got to be a different solution that we can't see in order to right that wrong. But the last thing that she says is that love comes into play and that love is, is what unites or injects a new world into the dying world. And she uses the example of a, of a mother and father having a child. Love brings them together, and she says, The child, this in-between to which the lovers now are related and which they hold in common, is representative of the world in that it, separa- it also separates them. It is an indication that they will insert a new world into the existing world. Love by its very nature is unworldly, and it is for this reason rather than its rarity that it is not only apolitical but anti political, perhaps the most powerful of all anti political human forces. And so, in summary, she basically sets up that, yep, man has attained more power than he ever has before, even more than the atom bomb. He can now make nature do what he wants it to do, he can even make his own nature. And this could destroy him. So, what's the solution? And the solution she provides is forgiveness, promises, and fulfilling them, and love between neighbor. And the example she gives you is Jesus Christ. This is a very profound chapter. Highly recommend. Even if you can't read the whole thing, that you read this. It's uh, chapter three, section thirty-three. For those that don't have the same edition that I do, but for those that do, it's it's between two. 36 and 242. It's just a phenomenal section, and when you actually understand the public-private distinction and how you you recognize that the revelation of Christianity cannot be kept under a bushel, so to speak. You know, it's kind of like the old Christian song for kids, like hide it under a bushel. No. Well, Hannah Rent gave you a very analytical description as to why it's not just a cute song. It's actually a political and metaphysical reality. Or a phenomenon that shows that Christian revelation about forgiveness is essential to the political vitality of the city and in the flourishing of human freedom. So that's my reflections for the morning. Hope you guys have a great day and uh, good days at work and all that. In the meantime, keep thinking.